The Guardian. The emergence of more infectious variants of SARS-CoV-2 detected in the UK, South Africa and most recently Brazil has prompted immunologists to begin asking how long our vaccines might remain effective for and whether their performance may already be compromised. The concern comes from where the changes have happened in the virus, in the so-called spike receptor binding domain. This is the part of the virus that attaches to human cells, which is why one of the mutations makes the virus better at infecting us. But it is also the region recognised by our antibody cells and targeted by the vaccines. The vaccines are already being tested against the new variants, but as the virus continues to mutate, scientists are also preparing themselves for having to make tweaks and changes to the vaccines in response. If we do need to redesign, we need to have the tools available to do that quickly with molecular vaccines, particularly RNA vaccines like the one we're working on at Imperial College. We are able to do that because we're so focused on just a part of the virus and just using a piece of genetic code that can easily be adapted to new strains if they were to emerge. I'm Linda Geddes and this is Science Weekly. Last week on the podcast, we explored the science behind the new COVID variants, asking how mutations arise and how they're being monitored. If you haven't heard these, do go back and take a listen. The discussions got us thinking. If a strain emerges that is immune to our vaccines or reduces their efficacy, what do we do? I called in on an expert. My name is Dr. Katrina Pollock. I'm a senior clinical research fellow in vaccinology at Imperial College London, and I am running the clinical trials of COVID vaccines at Imperial. So Katrina, the emergence of new variants of COVID-19, which behave a little differently to the ones we've previously seen, has raised this question of how long it might be before a variant appears that's immune to our vaccines and how we might respond if that happens. But before we get into that, it would be really great if you could start off by just giving us a quick explanation of how the current vaccines we've got work. The programme for developing vaccines has been mostly focused on preventing severe disease. So the two things that we need to understand are SARS-CoV-2 is the virus um, which causes the infection and COVID-19 is the disease. Now, there's lots of coronaviruses that circulate in the community and the vast majority of them don't cause severe disease. So it is the disease that we see, unfortunately, which is the real problem with um, SARS-CoV-2 infection. The current vaccines, of which you will have heard um, several, including the Oxford AstraZeneca and the Pfizer and BioNTech and the Moderna vaccines and many others coming in the pipe, have all done trials to look at whether they can prevent disease. And what's very encouraging is that they can. And so now uh, they're being rolled out uh, in many different places across the globe. And these current vaccines, are they different to the way more traditional vaccines work? All vaccines work by training the immune response. So I I always think of it like immune programming. And um, once your immune system has had that training, then if you then come into contact with the infection, you're much more likely to be protected either from the infection or, or the disease that it causes. Now, 
vaccines can do that in many different ways. Um, the flu vaccine that many people will have received is a, is a small amount of protein from, from the flu virus itself. Mm. Now, another way to do this to, in order to get the immune system trained is to actually make the body cells make the protein itself. And our cells are absolutely excellent at making protein. So that's a good way of, of solving the problem of designing vaccines. And that's what RNA vaccines do. So they use a small piece of code that um, our cells would be very familiar with and understand when it's injected. And that tells the cells to make a protein. And in this case, it's the spike protein from the coronavirus. The Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine and the Moderna vaccine use that approach. Um, and there are also several other RNA vaccines. We're working on this at Imperial College then there are designs of vaccines that do something similar but in a slightly different way and that would include the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine which uses um, an adenovirus to get the code into the cells. How do viruses like influenza or possibly SARS-CoV-2 end up escaping vaccines or how do they become immune to the vaccine's protective effects? This is a dynamic between the host and the virus which is essentially evolutionary and because it happens so quickly then we see uh, the effects uh, in the population or even in an individual very very fast and that's because um, viruses make new copies of themselves all the time and that, that's what they do they infect cells they need the cells to help them make new copies of themselves and then they make more copies and the idea is that they then transmit between people that is the basics of uh, the virus life cycle normally the virus um, when it first occurs and it first comes into contact with the host will occupy a niche a part of the body where it can infect the cells and reproduce. However, if we then start to have an immune response against that virus, we might be able to stop it replicating altogether, stop it um, making new copies of itself. But sometimes what can happen is that we can't completely stop that process, but we do change the way the virus interacts with its host. And that puts pressure on the virus. And then those viruses that are most fit to deal with that pressure start to outgrow the competition. And that can happen within an individual. And then if it places some benefit for the virus to then be able to transmit to other people, then that virus can start to become more dominant in the community. And that's what we're seeing with COVID right at the moment. And there have been some questions about whether vaccines may not be fully effective against, say, this B1351 variant, which was first detected in South Africa. What do we know about that at the moment? There's two ways that we can really be concerned about new virus variants. And the first one, we now have clear evidence, and that is uh, where we get changes in the proteins that the virus produces that change the way it interacts with its receptor and therefore it's able to be transmitted more easily. And we know that from the B117 variant that we're now seeing a lot in the UK, that that is exactly what's happening. That is slightly different from immune escape, from uh, vaccine-induced immunity. And we don't know yet for certain if, if that is going to be a problem for these vaccines, but we do have to monitor it. We do know that there are variants that can um, escape 
the sort of antibodies that we produce to the wild-type infection. What we don't know yet is if that's going to have any meaningful effect for the pandemic. And it's possible it will, but also it's possible that it may not. And we need to monitor it very carefully. And just speaking more generally, how common is it for viruses to adapt to and evade vaccines? That depends very much on the virus. If we think about um, flu, it's uh, very common. And the way that the virus interacts with its host is the thing that determines how easy it is to make a vaccine or how possible. If we think of HIV, for example, HIV is very, very good at evading host immunity. It has lots of different mechanisms that allow it to do that. And that means that it's been very, very difficult to develop a vaccine. But where we've been able to develop vaccines, it's not always the case that the um, virus can evade immunity. And we do know of one very obvious example, which is um, influenza, where it is able to change the proteins um, on its surface. And that means that we do have to vaccinate against different strains every year. Where do you think coronavirus sits on this spectrum? The virus itself doesn't have a particularly fast rate of mutation and much, much slower than a virus like HIV, for example. But what we're seeing is that there is so much transmission and there are so many cases all around the world that the virus is being placed under this huge pressure where there might be an immune response or a partial immune response to it. So I think what we're seeing is the effects of so many cases all at once, perhaps changing the virus's evolution maybe faster than we we might have predicted. But we still don't know what that's going to mean for vaccine design or whether it will mean that we need to redesign in the future or not. If we do need to redesign, then we need to have the tools available to do that quickly With these molecular vaccines, particularly RNA vaccines like the one we're working on at Imperial College, we are able to do that because we're so focused on just a part of the virus and just using a piece of genetic code that can easily be adapted to new strains if they were to emerge. How would you set about adapting a vaccine to a new variant or strain of virus? Can you talk me through what would happen in the case of an RNA vaccine if you were to make modifications to that? Yeah, so I use the example of the uh, vaccine that we're working on at Imperial College with Professor Robin Shattuck and his group. Um, So the way the vaccine is designed is it has a gene of interest and also an an amplifying component. And that's the novel component that makes it different from, for example, the the Pfizer-BioNTech or the Moderna vaccines, which don't amplify. They just give you one dose of the uh, RNA. And that gene of interest in in this case is um, the spike protein from the coronavirus from the wild type. So it's from the uh, original sequence that was um, published back in 2020. The cells then express that protein and you can make some modifications when you write the code in order to express the protein in a particular way. In this case, we know the spike protein is able to adopt more than one shape. And when it um, binds the cell, it changes its shape. And we didn't want that to um, be expressed, that different shape to be expressed. So the protein is just fixed in, in the position it has when it's not trying to bind to the cell. 
that means that the kind of antibodies that you will then get against that protein will recognise that pre-fusion confirmation. If we were to get a new virus which was able to evade some part of the immunity, then we need to study very carefully how it was doing that and what had changed in two ways. So its genetic code and then also what that means for the protein that it produces and then take that back to our own vaccine development pipeline and look at how we might need to change the code of the vaccine in order to respond to that to make, I would assume, a new spike protein that has a slightly different shape to induce slightly different antibodies. And what about a vector vaccine like the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine? How would you go about tweaking one of those? The principles are largely similar. The way that the vaccine works is slightly different. It uses an adenoviral vector, a harmless adenovirus from a a chimpanzee uh, in order to get the code into the cells. But the principle that I described is relatively similar in terms of how you might change uh, the code uh, in order to to then express a different spike protein. So what we have to understand here is that it's all about the particular protein that we want expressed. And it's that protein that we're then using to educate the immune system. Now, other types of vaccines might make that protein, uh, you know, using factory methods where the, the protein is actually produced to make the vaccine. But what these vaccines do, and including the adenoviral vector, is they actually express that protein of interest. So if you want to change it slightly, then you would have to change the code that's used in the adenoviral vector vaccine as well. So let's just say that another variant of SARS-CoV-2 did emerge, which could escape our current vaccines. How quickly do you think we might be able to devise a vaccine that would be protective against that? I mean, do you think it could be done within within six months or three months? I think three months would be incredibly ambitious. <laughs> we've we've managed it within, you know, within a year, haven't we, or, or just under. So, you know, the question is wh- whether we could bring that down to to six months and um, the rate limiting step there I, I would be what the clinical trials requirements are. Uh, and that's going to be a question for the regulators. For um, for flu vaccine, we are able to produce a, a new one every year because we know what the immune response for, to the vaccine is needed. And so we're very focused on, on that in order to produce new vaccines. Uh, and it may be that we can get to that point with SARS-CoV-2 if indeed we need to. And, and as I said, it, it's, it's possible that we won't, but that's why we have to constantly monitor the virus. And is there any way to look ahead and start working on new versions of the vaccines preemptively? Yes, we can do that. And and, um, I I think the majority of vaccine developers will be doing that. And and we can do that by getting the the new mutants uh, and using them in the laboratory and and seeing if serum from vaccinees is able to neutralise those new variants. And and that's ongoing work at the moment, yes, with many different vaccine developers, yeah. How likely do you think it is that we'll end up in a bit of a game of cat and mouse with this virus, where we do need to regularly update our vaccines like we do with flu? In the early stages of the pandemic, generally the the, the consensus was this wasn't going to be a problem or we couldn't be certain that it would be a problem. I'm now wondering if it might be. 
I don't think it's clear yet, and I, I can't say for certain. I am concerned about it. I think a lot of people are concerned about it, which is why we're we're monitoring it and also responding to it with our own work. I, I think we do need to understand about immunity in the community and how long people are retaining antibody for. So uh, I think there's a, a dual need to understand if you get neutralizing antibody if you get antibody that's actually going to function and, and protect from disease how long does that remain after you've been vaccinated so that's the first question so do we just need to keep boosting with the same vaccines that we're using now and then the second question is as you say do we need to change the structure of, of the spike protein or introduce uh, other proteins potentially to manage new variants and I have to say, I don't know. I, I, I think it's very important that we are ready to respond to that if we need it. I've heard from many esteemed colleagues different opinions, and I think we are at the moment in the realm of expert opinion. And um, we're not going to know that until uh, the vaccination programme is, is really underway and we started to get um, some idea of the impact that it's having. Thank you so much for your time, Katrina. Um, we really appreciate it. Sure, no problem. Thanks again to Dr. Katrina Pollock for speaking to us. If you have any questions or comments you'd like to send in to us on the podcast, you can email on scienceweekly at theguardian.com. We always enjoy hearing from you. We'll be back on Thursday. See you then. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.